Welcome back to Toys on Tap. We are the most stoked to bring on Dove from DKE Toys to talk all things toys and art and holy grail toys and all kinds of things, including the scene and collecting. If you want more Toys on Tap, you can rate, review, like, follow, subscribe, wherever you get podcasts. If you want to jump on the socials, on all social media, at Toys on Tap. And if you want to support the show financially, you can go to patreon.com slash Toys on Tap. Hey, this is Dove from DKE Toys. Uh, We are a... As far as everyone in the scene is concerned, we are a retailer of uh, handmade action figures uh, that artists make for us. Uh, we do several conventions a year, um, and you can see all of that stuff at dkatoys.com. Dove, it's been... Was that good for an intro? Yeah, it's perfect. We, <laughs> we, You've been not on this podcast for a long time. Uh, you were, what, number 10, you said? I was number 10, so it was like two and a half years ago, like right in the middle of pandemic. Yeah, we are, I think I'm at one, this episode will be 140. Can we talk about how far behind I am? Like how you put out a show, like we have our other DK Toys TV show and it's on YouTube and it's edited and stuff, so it takes longer, but I can't, I mean, I, I don't know how you do a weekly show. Like I, I'm still like on episode 70 i think i think i'm a year behind uh in listening or in putting in in listen in listening no your (laughs) i'm talking about toys on tap like it's you're doing such a great job just you know interviewing everyone in the scene everyone who comes to the scene and um it's uh i don't know it's really a great thing you're doing and it's really a, a wonderful service for the community and you should be very proud it's i know it's a lot of work yeah, I can tell you, um, usually it's very easy because I find joy in it. So I'll put it mm-hmm. wherever I can in my week. Um, the harder ones are um, the further they are from us. So last week was a loud space lab in mm-hmm. the Philippines. Um, I think it was uh, 19, eight, 17 hours ahead. So, right. And then on top of working with the time change, we have to then work in between our schedules so luckily i get off work on mondays at like 9 30 p.m um Uh and so i stayed later and was able to interview him at 10 30 which kind of put him right where he needed to be in the sweet spot that's the pun nice kill me but but at least technically i've had to do it where i had to use a translator yeah, I've like done for that Fat O in Thailand, that's so hard to conduct mm-hmm. an interview with someone when you have to wait for the person to translate, and it's just it it sort of ruins the flow of the conversation. You can't like interrupt. There's no like everything is just like you yeah. know. It's almost if you you wrote down your answers. You know. Yeah, um, I can say that Pumpkin Pop uh, was my favorite. Uh, to do that with because she had uh mm-hmm. I, I can't remember if he was a friend or a spouse or i don't know but um she since she knows english partially 
and he knows he's fluent mm-hmm. in both um we were all right, right. talking and it would work in conversation um i did sure. uh but you can, you can see facially like she she understands what you're saying yeah 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 and so you that get sort good. of nods and you can like but when there's only a translator and they don't understand english at all they are just you're trying to say this stuff and they're just waiting and it's yeah. so this is this like this uncomfortable yeah it's really hard to do <laughs> which is fun like i had a, a behind the scene thing when you get to the rage and toys episode he's in argentina mm-hmm. um i knew we had talked for probably about six weeks and i said hey if you need a translator you got to let me know mm-hmm. so i can book someone and um i got a I think I got a message 30 minutes before the episode that said, yes, I need a translator, (laughs) (laughs) which is awesome. Like it is what it is, but we were um, for the first 10 minutes, our screens were on and we were just typing and then translating through Google translate and responding back and forth. And luckily I could like Barrio Boba just happened to be available and jumped on and like save the day that's amazing i i would have delayed the interview like oh <laughs> i don't you just gotta start is... with google translate that's yeah that's some that is some devotion to schedule that i that's some yeah. ocd shit man you get a prize for that hey yo uh the only one that i can't that i that has turned me <laughs> down is uh b i can't remember his name i think it's b boro Bagard. he's in mm-hmm. iran and his english is uh he said he used a different word than broken it's like he i think he called it like half half right yeah something sort like of that. like how i speak spanish you know it's like yeah. spanglish <laughs> and uh, so but there, i don't there have are a lot you could find a translator though there are so many people that speak farsi in the u.s that it's not um yeah i, I think i i do have a volunteer that speaks farsi and i i i think i i will ask her to do that um i don't want to the harder part is like, I don't want any cultural faux pas to happen. Like, I don't know if he might be upset if it's a woman translating for me. I also don't know if he speaks Farsi, Posh too, or there's one other one. And so it's like trying to like oh. uh, pinpoint all these different, we're in it, Dove, we're in it. <laughs> I, yes. I, I'm not sure everyone wants to hear about the, the inner workings of uh, interviewing people, but hey, we're here. Yeah, and well, I mean, so, you still on top of the interviews, you are now doing DKE TV, which right. is a whole nother thing. Scheduling you, Janky Scott, and then whoever you bring on, which seems sure way crazier. So, just a little background for during pandemic when we stopped doing conventions, we um, we basically did the shows inside the warehouse here we set up um the booth in the warehouse we put up three cameras and then we did the convention live on zoom like the first one was san diego comic-con so i was sitting in the chair in the booth for five days we did it like we just kept the exact hours we did wednesday night then we did a full day thursday friday saturday sunday and then during that we started recording interviews and um then slowly, you know, we banked up, I don't know, a hundred and a hundred interviews or something like that. And then so slowly Jenkins editing them and putting them on our YouTube page. Um, I think they 
uh, they're very different kind of interviews because the interviews that we do are sort of, I'm going to call them like self-serving, you know, they're, they're, the ulterior motive is always like to tell the story of DKE, right? Yeah. It starts with people that I have relationships with. And then the, the stuff that we're talking about is, um, you know, it's sort of like the, the artistic challenge is ends up being the focus and why people do what they do, which is, you know, which I think complements the stuff that you're doing. I mean, we're not, because you're doing such a great job, we are not really shooting interviews anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it just, uh, because I've sort of interviewed almost all the people that I have a close connection with that we've worked with. A bunch of people have said no and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we might get back to it, but it's really not, not the focus. Like, I think mm -hmm. we all just decided, like, Yucko's killing it. And, um, you know, and then there's the Toys Alive guys that are also doing a weekly show for like three or four hours and creating this great, you know, it, it sort of complements what we're doing also in creating this environment where a lot of artists just log on and they're hanging out and uh, their focus is slightly different. And uh, it's just, it's really great. It's like, there's like a lot of content created and I think they all sort of uh, complement each other. So then I guess we did a San Diego and then we did a New York for three days and then we did a decon for three days and then we did it again in 2020, then we did 2021. And then as things got back to normal, when we stopped doing New York because we sold so much stuff online, like why do we need to travel to do that? Um, yeah. And then this last year was the first time we didn't do San Diego. We had a small representation there, but the guys from Creature Bazaar uh, took our booth. And so really our only live show is, is Designer Con, which is coming up uh, in December this year in Anaheim. Uh, highly recommended for anyone who uh, has never been. It's a, it's a great show. It's a creative space where there is no corporate bullshit. There's no movie studios there's no relatively no funko pops you know there's and there's a place for all that stuff but at this show every booth is a designer an artist a team or something trying to do something creative and it might not all be for you but it's fantastic so there's my decon plug um <laughs> so we decided in in lieu of doing these these live conventions where once pandemic was over nobody's watching you know like the viewership was like you know there's hundreds of people watching during pandemic like off and on during the day and conversation and people would say like hey can i see the item we're showing it hanging it up you know holding it up in front of the camera and really like trying to create an environment where people could interact with us and then so once we pivoted that that forced the pivot to become an online retailer which we had never done before um and now we do release stuff in conjunction with San Diego Comic-Con, but we're not going to San Diego. And even for Decon this year, the show's December 14th. It's in the middle of December, something like that. Like we're releasing everything online on the 1st of December because we need to be able to ship stuff to get it to them uh, for Christmas. So we just decided instead of doing this 
this show for five days, which was a slog. And it's just my ass hurt just sitting in this chair, like in the booth. And uh, we just decided a, a weekly YouTube show feels better. And instead of doing interviews, we're just having guests. And we're just trying to be entertaining and talk about the new stuff that is, uh, you know, coming out. And so th there's always three shows that sort of surround each convention that we do. And then in between, we do some other shows, but it's less of a an interview and more of just sort of like a hangout. Yeah, I ask a few questions and stuff, but then I, you know, I show people like what's new on the site or like some other stuff that we got, or we talk about another subject or some media or something like that. Uh, we just shot a show yesterday, which will be up next week, which is the first uh, segment of just bootleg Boba Fett's. So we mm. went through the archive. Uh, Ian pulled out about 25 pieces, 23, whatever, a couple dozen pieces to start with that are all Boba Fett's. And we just thought, like, this would be a good way to, like, get other people who are not in the scene to, like, tune in, right? Because there's a lot of collectors out there that collect Boba Fett. Maybe they've never bought a resin figure. So how do we get people paying attention to, like, this space that we're in, which is a very small, you know, we talked before, it's like this niche of a niche of a niche kind of thing. So um, we went through, you know, a bunch of Boba Fett's, which was a lot of fun. And then, you know, we'll do it again. And I, and I might go through like our Simpsons collection and pull out like bootleg Simpsons stuff uh, and do an episode about that. So we can sort of like focus on, on different, uh, um, on different topics if we want. And then the main thing is, um, uh, Ben uh, from 3D Retro and DesignerCon used to have Toy Geeks. Mm -hmm. And Toy Geeks was his weekly show, and we would go on before every convention and show all of our stuff and that was going to be at that show. And so everyone would watch that show to get a preview. And then after a while, I was like, Ben, like, can we do the show? And he actually hadn't shot a show since the last time we were on. So for a couple of years, he only did three Toy Geeks a year just to show the DKE product, which was getting kind of ridiculous. And then eventually, like, you know, you didn't have a babysitter, whatever, you'd cancel. I'm like, this is a big deal to all these artists who made stuff for us. They want to be on this show. And then they're not able to because of his personal stuff. It, it just didn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and so I talked to Jenky and it was just like, Let's start DK Toys TV. So it was sort of out of necessity. Mm -hmm. You know, if we could have continued to have been on Toy Geeks, uh, I think we would have just continued to do that. But so, you know, we try to just post a new interview um and uh every week and then shoot it, you know, DK Toys TV every couple of weeks. And eventually we're gonna run out of interviews because um, I think I think we're still like two years behind. I don't know, there might be another 50, 40 to do. I, Jenky would know the numbers, but uh, I think once we hit all those, I think I'm done with interview. I think that's that's a yucko job and hanging yep, my hat on. <laughs> you know, we, I, I think when you talk about Comic-Con, the question that I have is, was it always the trajectory that we that you would just eventually stop doing Comic-Con? Because it seems like what we do with you or what you are doing at like DesignerCon, Comic-Con mm -hmm. might not be the scene. So was it, were you forced out uh, just quicker than you wanted to? Or did you, what was that? Concurrently, 
with okay so let's, let's go back to the beginning we started doing san diego comic-con as an advertisement of new products that we were releasing okay. when dke toys was a, a designer toy distributor mm-hmm. so for the people who don't know we used to before i sold the 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 distribution part of the company to what company is now called dispersed um who was next to us generally at san diego um so I, I sold the company in 2016 i continued to work for them for a while and they still lean on me for stuff from time to time but the reason to go to san diego was to show all of the people not the independent artists that were making us action figures but the the companies and artists that were making vinyl toys okay and so we we were the distributor. You can still go to dktoys.com. The old site is up. You can see logos. There's, I don't know, we represented 500 companies or so. And if you, like Kid Robot, they would manufacture their own work, uh, own pieces, and they would sell them wholesale. So they did their own wholesale in-house. There were a lot of larger companies like that. But if you you know, made 100 pieces of something in China and you know, you sold a few on your site at retail, but then you wanted to get in all the stores, you could definitely get on the phone and try and do that yourself. But most people would just come to us and let us handle that. They would, And then it just got to the point where they would make stuff in China and ship all the stuff from China directly to us, mm-hmm. come get whatever they needed personally. And then the stuff, you know, we would warehouse the stuff and, and sell it to stores. So at Comic-Con every year, that was... We did New York Toy Fair once and then realized that like those are not our people. Mm-hmm. All the buyers for all the stores in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, like all, those, throughout those years, all the buyers for all the stores showed up at San Diego to see what was new. So our booth was just showcases and one of everything that was in stock and one of every sample that was coming soon. And then we would sell some exclusives from time to time in order to sort of cover expenses, but we never could, mm-hmm. right? It was just, it's too expensive a show to do. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have an engine failure. We almost crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation. Hooray. We'll save the DLV2. Limited edition custom artist made action figures and DKE toys. Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures. DKE. Um, between the booth, and we used to have multiple booths and furniture to rent. Now, with one space, let's say it costs about 10 grand. But back then, it could have cost 20. Right, because it's like the the booth is not as expensive as it is to house and feed people. Um, yeah, and there was no there was no Airbnb back then, where you could just get a house, put you know ten people in there, or whatever. Uh, you never had ten people, but like four or five kind of thing. Um. So, as the buyers, as technology changed, and all of our sales just went online. Uh, all of our promotion was online. There was no reason really for those store owners to show up at San Diego. So that sort of went away mm-hmm. to the point where 
one year we decided to go from three booths to one booth and do a test. And then I brought a monitor on a stand and we just cycled through like all the new stuff that was coming soon, right? To give people an idea of like, here are all of the new vinyl toys and products we're selling. And really like nobody cared. And after that, we're like, okay, fuck that. We don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and then we started to think like, okay, we're if I'm going to San Diego, what can I sell to like make this worth the time? And when we started, it was easy for a company who made 500 toys to make us an exclusive of 50 toys to sell there and selling an addition of 50, you know, $600 toy, whatever was not an issue. The room was just full of people just buying stuff. We would sell out, you know, one year, like I was standing there, I had to give out tickets and we'd have to do lotteries. And it was just, it, it was just kind of crazy. Everyone was there. There were a ton of flippers too, because right? a lot of people couldn't be there. And because we didn't sell on retail online, that was the only time of year we sold retail. So you either had to be in the room or know someone um, because everything sold out and um, we didn't have the capacity or the staff to start dealing with individual customers who were buying one piece at a time. Yeah. I didn't want to come home and ship, you know, 500 single orders. That would have, you know, I never had that kind of business. I still don't where, the profitability of the business is based on, okay, here in this hour, you need to ship 20 packages or we make or lose money and like have to like crack a whip. Like I yeah. can't run, you know, like a, a business like that and stand over people and nor is that helpful for the, the world. Um, so it got harder and harder for these companies who were as the, the 2008, 9, 10, the, you know, the economic whatever downturn, and then things started to contract a little bit. And then all of these companies, in order to survive, when they used to just be like 100% wholesale, now had to start selling their own stuff at retail in order to keep the doors open mm -hmm. and keep produ products going. So they would make exclusives for themselves. So why would they give an exclusive to me, right, and give us a cut? when they could just sell it themselves. So it just didn't make sense. And then the people that were there to fill in the void were these resident action figure makers. And there was one year, 2013, 2014, we had some final toys, but maybe we had 10 new resident action figures. And it just, it was insane. Everyone, Wednesday night, we sold out of everything. And I'd never seen that before. We had work from like 2-Bit Hack and like uh, we had like a Suckler piece. Whatever it was, it was like uh, Mock Toys, like all those early guys back then. And everything was just gone. And mm -hmm. I called my wife who was coming down the next day. I said, go to the warehouse and go pick up more stuff. We had to like populate the booth. And then I just sort of realized that this San Diego Comic-Con is the perfect nexus for introducing people to handmade action figures. Yeah. Because it had the pop culture reference, but it was a piece of art. Um, even though they are expensive compared to a normal uh, action figure, for a handmade piece of art, they are 
the cheapest and most super affordable based on the time that you guys put in making the stuff, right? It's like, I mean, they're practically slave wages at the retail you charge, right? That's what I yeah. always tell people when they call me. Like, it's just, and we hope that we're building towards something where, you know, you know, I'm sure the suckler wishes he could make a figure and sell it for a thousand dollars. Like that's the dream, right? I mean, that's yeah. everybody's, everybody's dream. It's like, I can quit my job. And I can sell a hundred figures a year for a thousand dollars each. And, Boom, you know, I can like improve the quality of my life. But um the and then the people in that room were an international audience who flown in from all over the world. And most of the people buying stuff from us were in the in in some industry. They were either toy makers, comic creators, in the video game, animation, movie, film, TV, like they were uh people who were really sick of what the other companies were doing and wanted something new and interesting. And I think that is a large part of who, you know, this whole medium appeals to are people who grew up with action figures, have nostalgia, but really sort of over the commercialization and what is happening. And I mean, that's how I got into vinyl toys and designer vinyl to begin with is like my frustration with what was coming out at, Toys R Us and Target and Walmart. Yeah. Um, you know, you wanted something with a soul and like, hey, this guy made this by hand. There's only 20 in the world. Like, look at this this beautiful piece of art. So San Diego was sort of the perfect place for it. Um, it sort of grew. People would show up. There was a line to buy the stuff. Um, and it was... I don't know. I think we introduced a lot of people. It was sort of like the hub of what was happening. And then Decon sort of slowly built, and then Decon became um, became a factor. We also started doing New York Comic Con, but New York Comic Con was more work and probably the same, even though it was a less expensive show to do, by the time we shipped everything to New York and back and airfare and hotels in New York are crazy, it was pretty much cost as much as San Diego, but we would sell half as much. Yeah. Now, from a promotional angle, I think it was invaluable. So I think the the upshot is we never sold online and pandemic forced our hands. And I never want to sell online because each of these artists individually, like when you make something for us for Decon, you have a website, you sell your own stuff, right? I always felt that selling something on our site was a comp was presenting like a competition. Like it's sort of like stepping on your own dick. Like you're, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, why give it to us when you can sell it yourself? Um, it turns out there is a benefit for some for what we do. Um, and a lot of people are happy with the result based on our ability to, I, I think a couple of factors. One is just the promotional angle. Like if we have a press list, we send out press releases, we do the, the live shows, uh, we do the social media. And there's a lot of people, unfortunately, who come and shop from us because they can see it all, uh, all in one place and might not go and hunt out an individual artist to see what they're offering. Um, I'm not entirely sure that that's good or bad, but I'll tell you that there's some people who just never do that, right? There's some people who will just show up to a show, 
and buy something from us every live convention, but will never go online and buy the same item. There's just some customers that we lost. And they would say, hey, are you doing San Diego? It's like, no, but here's a link. Everything that we have this year is on the site and no sale, right? So there's some people who want to show up and want to buy something uh, in person and want to feel it in their hands and don't want to, you know, look at an image online. I, I, I can't explain it, but yeah. um, so basically after we started doing our live shows, um, we just realized that um, we're now online retailers and there was just no going back. And uh, I don't know. it. Uh, and then concurrently, San Diego just became less meaningful. Yeah. The, our audience sort of went away. It used to be the hub where everyone would spend the money to travel there because there was all of these unique things in the rooms. But I think all of the companies sort of realized the same thing, that they can just put the stuff online and sell just as much or more, and they don't have to spend all the money to be in that room, where it used to be sort of like a requirement. And it just... So at the same time that pandemic hit and we're, you know, doing online sales, San Diego is sort of tanking. So in 2022 was the first year back at San Diego, and we did a test. We put everything on sale the week before San Diego mm -hmm. on our website, and we sold what we would normally sell. So what we'd normally sell at all the other online, you know, shows that we did. Um, and when I say online show, that means when it was released. Our website is up. You can go to dktoys.com, click on the store link, and everything is there that is currently available. But when I say a show, that means this sort of build up to promoting all of these new things that are available on that specific date. Um, and then we showed up at the show after doing our normal sales to try and see if we could sell enough to just cover expenses. Mm -hmm could I recoup $10,000 in expenses? And we couldn't. You know, it just, uh, I don't know, after paying the artists after sales tax, 10,000 expenses, I feel like we had to sell like over 20, like $22,000 worth of stuff. And we Which is it. crazy. It, it, doable if in previous years, um, when the crowd was different and there was no online online sales yeah but the the issue is that we so it it lost money and it was too much money that we couldn't justify it i what i thought to myself is if we could just break even mm -hmm. i could count all of it. breaking even is not really breaking even because you're working for months to try and pull this off right so it's sort of like you never get paid for the time when you break even like financially, but you're like, I don't, you don't get paid for your time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we couldn't cover expenses. So we just decided like, Hey, this is not, we don't need to be here. Yeah. Like there's, there's no, there's no upside. Yes. The artists do want the toy on the table for people to come by who might not have known what this is, but the number of people in that room that are there to, to find new stuff 
Those people have gone away. I mean, I'm personally at age 50, I'm aging out of that show. I walk around the show and less and less appeals to me. It's not designed for me anymore as it was when I was in my 20s. You know, I started going to San Diego Comic-Con. I think my first was like 92 or 93, something like that. Yeah. And I, and in those days, pre-eBay, like that, it was magic. Everyone cleared out their garages. Tables were full of things you'd never seen before. It was like, if you wanted to buy toys, you had to, there was a, 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 news, a newsprint magazine called Toy Shop. People would take out these full page ads and then people would pay extra money to have the toy shop FedEx to them next day so they could go through and look through all the paper ads and you'd call and say, Oh, you have a yak face, so you have a this and like that's how that's how toy dealers did business. Like through like, I don't know, seventies, eighties, you know, nineties, and then the internet just eBay just totally obliterated that. Mm-hmm. Right. And then people's ability to do, you know, inexpensive online stores and then, you know, that whole market and the toy conventions also went away. Uh, Los Angeles is kind of a a desert for good conventions. So there's some conventions out here, but they're. Well, at least for me at my age, I don't I can't go to any of these shows and find anything I want. Yeah. You know, but then I'm weird and I collect this really weird shit so yeah (laughs) uh i it's crazy to hear um so 92 93 you go i'm two or three years old at that point um if that's any indication of how young i am in this uh i remember hearing my brother like i was 10 years old maybe talking about going to comic-con Mm-hmm. And we lived in Fresno, so it was a trek. He was driving down and all that stuff. Um, and I remember seeing him come back with movie posters, like so much stuff. It was magic. Like that's where you would go. Like you couldn't go by – like in, in L.A., you could go on Hollywood Boulevard. You'd go to Cinema Collectors or Hollywood Book and yeah. Poster or some of those places to try and find a movie poster. But – that's not the same as when the dealers from all around the world come and like bring all their stuff into this huge room and then pull out their magic and are competing with one another. That's just, it was, uh, it was so much fun. Yeah. Um, I, it, uh, I've never been able to, to recapture that. Like I just, I go to conventions all the time. I need to see people and make connections and, and stuff like that. But, I don't uh I don't have those I never have those feelings anymore. Yeah. That sounds um, so heartbreaking, Duff. Dude, I, <laughs> I went to so there's a for those who live in Southern California here, there's a show out here called Frankensons. Yeah. Frankensons uh started in a trucking warehouse um in the mid to late nineties and it started out mostly baseball cards. And then the comics crept in and then the toys and now, and that was like the place. Like I was driving to San Gabriel Valley twice a week. Everything. I mean, San Diego was like once a year, but this was twice a week and everything of any note was like going through that room. Mm -hmm. It was, it was unbelievable, especially in sports cards. It was like magic. And then, 
so that killed all the other conventions and then ebay came along yeah. and killed that convention you know and then i just went recently uh you know scott cherry and i went uh and resin blood was out here we all went to frankincense and i walked around and i was like sort of like depressed like anything that i remotely wanted was double the price that it should be yeah like this thing sells for 20 online you're asking 45 like what what's going on and it just there was no magic and maybe i'm just old and jaded maybe i don't know but it was like i you know enjoyed hanging with the guys and stuff but it was not uh uh it was depressing yeah ebay is a very interesting uh it's a interesting beast because i i've seen some of our work on ebay people will try to sell it i've seen a lot of suck lord um but sometimes either through mix-ups or whatever you find crazy stuff uh mm -hmm. uh i love last bastion studios and i found one of their giant ragnar soft vinyls on there for nine bucks that's true i mean it's crazy ebay not too long ago last or five years purged a hundred thousand sellers because yeah. they were trying to compete with Amazon and they want people selling printer cartridges and shit. And so they stopped caring about the collectible people because they're worried about their stock price or whatever. And so they kicked off all these sellers based on some algorithm generated criteria, you know, like how now everything is like, there used to not be an algorithm. There used to be, you search for something and it actually searches for those words that you type in. Yeah. Can you imagine such a time? Now, <laughs> you know, it gives you what they think you want and then it weights it with the people who have sponsored and then the people who have whatever behaved in a way that their algorithm likes. Like you list stuff, you know, every day, you... uh get special treatment because you ship the same day like they're trying to compete with amazon well amazon's not selling collectibles and they realized they're not making money from collectible people so they kicked all these people off so now you can't find anything good on ebay like if i want something i could set up a search but it just it's not there and so now there's this whole that this vacuum that has been created where these things that are out there that just don't get listed and concurrently san diego comic-con which used to be where everyone emptied their garage of all their cool stuff is so expensive to do now everyone's bringing their best stuff mm. no one brings their dollar comics right you bring your ten thousand dollar your ten thousand dollar comic waiting for like the one you know movie star to come by and you know make your show and so it's like there's so the the those boxes full of treasure that you would look through those are those are gone yeah. no one can afford to no one can afford to bring that kind of stuff so it's a it's an interesting world collect collectibles have, you know have had their ups and downs um i mean i'm certainly you know very pleased and happy in this little niche that we're in um i, I think the you know, we, you and I look at this, you know, on a quarterly, a yearly basis, and we see this, uh, the ups and downs of this business, but it's not going to be looked, uh, 
no one's going to look at that years from now. This is going to be considered like an era. Mm-hmm. You know, this first 20 years, it's going to be 20 years since the Suck Lord made his, uh, his Suck Lord 66 and his gay empire figure. So like the, the resin action figure has just, you know, reached its 20 year point. And we will look to look at these in much broader, you know, eras. Um, and it, I mean, it's kind of fascinating, you know, to see where this art form goes to. Um, and then, you know, the other side of our business, which we've also been doing for 30 years, is buying collections from people. And we've been, we started out selling Star Wars toys, and that's something that we've, even when I sold the distribution company, I never sold the part of the business that, you know, buys and sells vintage collectibles. And so um, I would say that this is the the number of pieces that have walked through our doors recently in the past two years is unprecedented. Um, the well, amount that, of... Could you put a number? As far as what? How many pieces? Oh, I mean, no, not really. But let's say for the first, you know... For 30 years, let's say, I would buy and sell uh, collections. People either, um, I guess in the early days, in the 90s, you could still find new old stock. Yeah. Right? There's still someone from the 80s that like had, you know, whatever, boxes full of, action, you know, Kenner action figures of Star Wars keychains, talking alarm clocks, posters. Yeah. Uh, now... You're mostly buying from, uh, you know, people I would, and you'd buy childhood collections. People would come in and it's like, here, this is my action figures from when I was a kid. It's like, okay. But now it's collectors, or let's say in the interim, in the middle period, it was collectors who have stopped collecting. Mm -hmm. I'm done. I'm not interested in collecting this anymore. I don't want my spawn figures anymore. I don't want my Pokemon cards or my comic books or whatever. And they call us to sell those. But now uh, I'm experiencing something that I've never experienced before, which a lot of the toy dealers who have, who let's say sell Batman or sell Mego toys or stuff from the, the 50s and the 60s, they've experienced people passing away and then their relatives selling their collections. Mm. But for like Star Wars era, and it's just, I don't know why, it's just never happened to me until early last year. Um, and because during during pandemic, no collections came in the door. I mean, now, virtually every week, there's a couple of collections. Either someone walks in the door with a box, a trunk full, but I'm also getting calls, you know, come clear out my house. Whoa. You know, like my ex-husband died, please, you know, here's like his comic books and his DVDs and his posters and his Lego and his whatever, you name it, like, please take everything kind of thing. So I've sort of become like Sanford and Son, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. And uh, I've learned a lot about a lot of different kind of collectibles because I'm just showing up and um, there are video game collections and there are... I don't know. In one collection I got, it was like all airline stuff. This couple had flown first class around the world. 
and they just like i guess they just stole everything off the plane because and there's people who collect this stuff right <laughs> yeah like it's like every glass of you know they went on the concord here's a certificate that they went on the concord and a little you know bag they give them with their toiletries and breath freshener or whatever but then there's like the silverware and the glasses yeah and um and so i have to just find a i have like you know 10 boxes of airline stuff and i just have to find another retailer who you know so if i i can sort of like if i'm getting a house full of stuff sometimes i have to part out collections mm-hmm. um where i guess i've always done this uh if there's something that's not my specialty someone gives me like here's my uncle's like native american art collection I'm like okay <laughs> yeah you know it's like i was there to buy the you know the storage uh their storage containers like full of um storage unit rather you know full of you know whatever their sideshow toys or the superhero toys but then there's always this other box like oh i've been saving this do you want this like okay so then you have to just sort of figure out how to move that stuff. And uh, so, yeah, now I have these people. Like I have a, one guy I go for comics. I have one way I can sell posters. I have a, one guy who will melt down like silver and gold for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fucked up. <laughs> uh, yeah, because everyone was home during pandemic. And so no collections came in. Mm-hmm. It was two-year period almost nothing walked in the door and I thought I was out of that business. And then the, the, the resident action figures were so good. I just thought, okay, I'm done. And star Wars celebration, which is the way we normally would unload all of the um, stuff that is not packaged. So if something comes in and it's brand new and it's got a package, it's in a package, uh, whether it's vintage or new and it has a UPC code, whatever, easy to sell. Right. I can, easy to sell to either my list of people who I know who need the stuff or other dealers, whatever can easily move that stuff. When I get like a used talking alarm clock, you know, a model kit that's been opened or a puzzle or, you know, these things where I don't know um, if they're complete, like that sort of just goes in boxes. And then I save that for star Wars celebration where I can just sell everything for a dollar, $5, $10. But star Wars celebration in 2020 got postponed until 2022. And I had like six pallets of stuff to bring to the show. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm going to sit on this stuff for another two years. And so I just liquidated it and I said, I'm done. Breaking news. Welcome to the Furby break, where we tell you about an upcoming show put on by Toys on Tap, hosted by Toy Du Jour. To start, do you want to talk about why you okayed Toys on Tap doing a Furby show? Uh, uh, Yeah. Uh, you 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 came to us and you half mentioned the the idea and that you were shopping it you know looking for a place to do it and as soon as you said Furby, I was like absolutely uh, not not just because of how um, how prevalent it is in in our <laughs> uh, not age group but you know just like in the in the zeitgeist of of collecting communities you know furby is a, a huge deal but also um my landlord's son really likes furby and i can't wait to, for how pissed off he's gonna be that he's gonna have to buy so much of this art when his kid sees it <laughs> <laughs> what's crazy is um i start so i've never curated a show never done any of that so i started reaching out to what it became was like 
a lot of my favorite people. And then um, from that group, I split it into different countries. And then from that group, it was like, who has different skill sets? And just everyone's excited. They're sending me their progress pictures, their DM. This show's about to be insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really like that you did that. Uh, I have a tendency to try to find artists that fit the format that I'm yeah. doing. And uh, I, I've, I've learned since, you know, uh, you're doing this and it, it's great you, you did this. And, and Dano did this when he did the Nugget show that, you know, it it pays off to, to reach out to folks outside the normal uh, format of what you're looking for, you know. Um, one of the cool things that we talked about early on was we would send out the McDonald's, those Happy Meals, and then gave them the option, hey, this is what we're looking for, but if you decide you want to do Furby art instead, like, we could tie both of those in. Um, and I'm happy to say over half decided to go with the McDonald's, like, plastic Scott Hensy sculpt, yeah. um, but the other half... In, like involves there's a couple prints uh action figures i know i'm bringing in an action figure and it's it's becoming more than i thought it would which is pretty exciting for a show <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah we, it's as easy it is for me on the uh the one end when everything's yeah. uniform like we just did the nintendo show and it was boxes and cartridges um getting to see all the different stuff flow through i mean that's it, it's it's a weird Christmas morning every time we get a package or somebody posts something. It's like, oh my gosh, what's coming through now? You know, it's the most nerve wracking part uh, of putting these shows together is actually putting the um, the pieces up and making sure everything's represented the right way and like can be viewed the right way because it's it's a fairly small space that we put everything in um, and what we have to work with. We've had some overflow on previous shows where like we'll find space for other things, but bringing in all these different types of items uh, and having the store open while we're trying to figure it out and helping customers and people bringing stuff to, to sell to us. Uh, that's why we need the, the amount of time that we need leading up to the show to, to put together, you know? Yeah. What do you, on the night of the opening, what do you anticipate it looking like or feeling like in there? Uh, so there's, never any telling of what what the uh, the turnout specifically is going to be mm -hmm. uh the, the vibe if we want to talk to that i i already know it's going to be such a feel-good show you know because that's kind of like what the the furby vibe is you know uh and then people bringing that to it i i know that like some some of the artists are possibly going to lean dark with what they do because that's an inherent take on when you're presented with something as uh for lack of a better word like like a wholesome toy uh to see it and go like well i want to go the other way with it and that makes sense but i know that the the feeling of furby rings through so strong that like so many people are going to be like well i want i want to bring that through in what i'm presenting as well so i know that the the, the feel and the vibe of the show and like everybody there is going to be real real positive uh uh and it's not to say despite any any darker leaning toys it's yeah it, <laughs> yeah because uh, i know that that that's that's just art and that's what comes through you know i'm pumped uh i'll be flying out so i can't wait to be there on opening um 
yeah, I was the my brain started going into like weird directions of man, do I make Furby shaped cookies and hand those out to people? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't wait to be there for opening. Yeah, we've had we've had some stuff in the past where uh, we we partner with some local businesses. So like uh, Polly G's is a, a pizza place that has done a few of our shows with us. Um, we reach out to them anytime we have a weird ask, and we're like, "Can you do a pizza like this to fit this show?" And they've done they've done some great stuff where they've almost like done three D printing cheese, like just to like have logos and stuff on a pizza. Um, they the one that I, I still can't figure out. They they did the Voltron show for us, mm-hmm. and uh, they made a Voltron pizza where like they used different color toppings on the one pizza, but the blue it it always escapes me what they use for blue because blue is not a, like a color that turns up often in food. Yeah. Uh, and I, it had to have been like one of those purple potatoes or something possibly that they uh, blanched or dyed a little bit to, to get the color. Right. Um, but yeah, like the Furby cookies, you know, if we, if we think of something in, in the meantime, for sure, let's, let's, there's something in there, you know, do you want to tell the details of how it opens, how long you keep it, all those things? Uh, it's our, it's our normal shop. Uh, the shop is open, uh, like you can buy anything that's in there, uh, including the art, but like, you know, we're open for normal sales. Uh, we close the shop at 6 PM on Fridays and what we normally do and what we'll do for the Furby show, show is we'll stay closed for an hour so we can finalize anything that needs to be done. We reopen at seven. Um, people sometimes line up outside waiting to get into the art show. Um, and then when we open the doors at seven, you're allowed to come in, walk straight up to the art. You see something you want, you just turn around to me at the counter, me or Liz, and ask uh, to purchase the piece. <clears throat> so what we do, you would pay for the piece then, and this, the entire show stays up in, in in its entirety for about two weeks. After that point, we'll text you um, if you're local, or we will ship to you the item that you bought. Um, now, pieces start coming down. And then we rearrange the show that's uh, remaining with unsold pieces. And that usually stays up there for a, about a full month. So opening night pieces sell. They'll stay there about two weeks. And then we'll start pulling them down and letting people pick them up. And then another couple weeks, the entire show's still, or, you know, the remaining show's still there. Um, then also during the show, we have light drinks and snacks, usually some weird Oreo flavor that we go out of our way to find. Um, and then there's uh, beer for anybody 21 and up, and you are also allowed to BYOB. So, like, we'll have coolers and stuff set out that if you want to bring stuff and set it in there, go for it. If not, we have a really weird Coors Light machine in the back that's always stocked. Uh, it's a it's a Yeah. <laughs> it's a this big Coors Light refrigerator that you smack a button on the bottom and a can rolls out the bottom. Uh, and then we'll have, like, whatever beer that we decide to pick up outside of that um yeah and there's music playing we'll we'll see about getting a dj for this one we we have djs from time to time dj the art shows um and then yeah uh hopefully some of the artists will make it out i i saw some on there that are semi-local and they do come to shows so that'd be nice i can't wait to see it i you know uh it's um there's like toy shops that do things for resin artists and toy artists and being in California, I don't get to see those shops. So this will be, you're the first of those shops that I've seen, which is cool. Um, so I'm pumped to be there in person and to uh, just be 
I think in the vibe of like an art show as well as a toy shop, like that's something that I've never even seen. So I, I can't wait. Right on. Yeah. I'm excited to, excited to meet you in person. Yeah. And, uh, start putting this show together. Awesome. Um, any final thoughts on the Furby show before we get rolling? Um, I'd say if there's, if there's a piece that you see that you're interested in, uh, like when the show goes up, uh, I'm, you feel free to reach out. However, um, I can't sell to uh, individuals outside the gallery opening until after the show. So people coming into the show for the gallery opening get first dibs on the art that's there. Cause that's kind of the point of the show is to, yeah. to get people in our doors. Um, but you're more than welcome. Cause we'll, we'll do, um, that's something I didn't go over. Sorry. Uh, after that, we'll, we'll do an Instagram claim sale, uh, with any unsold pieces. Um, not always, but if somebody's adamant about a piece, um, reach out to me and see if you can snag it after the gallery opening, but before the Instagram claim sale. Uh, if there's too many, I might tell people to hold off and just claim during the sale. But if there's somebody just like, I I can't live without this piece, let's, let's see if we can make it work for you. Yeah, awesome. Dude, thank you again for letting this happen. Uh, it's a dream come true. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super, super excited about this one, man. I think I'm, uh, I told my wife, I think I'm just out of like the the vintage toy business. And then 2022, January, that's when I got the first call, the first house full of stuff. And I did Star Wars Celebration in March of 2022. And I think Ian drove down four truckloads of stuff. I mean, I was afraid that we, ooh, like, I was so desperate to sell all this stuff because we brought down, we only have like one truck, right? So mm. you bring down four truckloads, you can't come back with, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have to sell it. I can't get the stuff back out of the room. Yeah. But he would go, like, um, we'd just fill the booth up and I just unloaded everything and come back the next day with more stuff. And it was, it was crazy. Um, I moved through just a ton of stuff and, um, and that's fun. I, I do enjoy going through collections. It's very hard for me to find something that I really want for myself. But when yeah. I do, you know, when you especially if it's worthless and you really and you really wanted it, that's the most fun. Because how much time do you want to spend? How many days of your life do you want to spend tracking down this one item that's worth fifteen dollars? But then you open a box and you're like, oh, I've been looking for that. So yeah, that's a lot of fun. So you know, it. Uh, that's part of being in business is being sort of diversified. We do a couple of different things. And in doing that, it has always created a balance that has kept us in business for 30 years. I find myself um, in collecting. It started with, and I think it still centers around just the stuff that I had growing up. Um, street sharks, earthworm gym figures, but I've found a love in uh, like legit bootleg figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, do you know uh, Chance Priest? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he does love his the, work. Yeah. His woe two figures are fantastic. But on his like his toy collection side, he kind of has mm-hmm. that like warehouse aspect like you. And then we'll mm-hmm. run auctions on. Uh, stuff and uh 
luckily I've gotten to know him over just this and over time. And so I'll every once in a while I'll send him a message like, Hey, are you going to put in any like bootleg TMNT figures? Right. And he will say like, I got you. And he'll throw something in the picture. And, um, but those, they're so interesting because they're so worthless to so many mm-hmm. people because they're ugly right. and they don't make sense. But to those of us that love them, I'll give my right arm for some of them because sure. they're so. And he said something the other day uh, that was so crazy. We were talking about, so you, you brought up like, you don't find this stuff. Like people don't store it anymore. It's been so long since the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. And in the nineties uh, in Australia, there was this uh, street shark bootleg that came out of their dollar store kind of thing um and he said Mm -hmm. it kind of disappeared no one really had them and then all of a sudden someone found a storehouse that had thousands Mm -hmm. of them packaged and uh, but it was a limited quantity like after that it was gone and it's just so crazy to hear that that like i'm chasing a dollar store totally that i'm never gonna pay a dollar for it but that's the that is the trajectory of traditional bootlegs. Yeah. Um, if you look at, and I wish that I was not only aware but had the 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 artistic sensibility that I do now. Mm-hmm. Like, I I look at a lot of artists' work who are, you know, like Mark Todd, like people who do work called that is like they call it naive. You know, that it looks very childish in a certain way um, or looking at bootleg toys where it's clearly off. You know, it's not on book at all and there's something wrong with it. Yeah. Um, I, I, for a good part of, you know, my life, I just thought that that stuff was garbage. And now I have an affinity for it. Um, but it is unaffordable for me to go back and buy Star Wars bootlegs. Yeah. Like you could have had the Turkish bootlegs. You could have had the Uze figures for, you know, in the hundreds of dollars. Uh, but it just, um, it, there's an episode of the Suck Hour, uh, the Sucklords YouTube show with Lev from Toy Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And he tells the story about flying to turkey and um he'd actually be a good person for you to interview he's got so many great stories but getting on a camel and like trekking all the way out to the toy factory and knocking on the door and like he claims that he was the first one who brought the turkish star wars uze figures to the united states i'm sure other people did and they made their way here but some of those figures now are like 20 grand yeah uh, and then Brian Flynn from Super 7 it told me the same thing when it came to his Godzilla collection. The bootlegs used to be worthless. Everyone wanted just the original pieces. And then once all of the big collectors get all of those original pieces, they start looking for the other stuff. And yeah. then the bootlegs end up being worth more than the original stuff. And that is, that's true for Star Wars. Um, I don't know how that's going to apply to, you know, I'm not sure that necessarily there's a parallel for, you know, resin artists, but um, who make quote unquote bootlegs that are not really bootlegs, but are art. Um, So, yeah, 
um, I, I wish I was, uh, I have some regret there. Yeah. I don't, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. It's just so crazy to think that, uh, some of the things that I chase or what people chase were made in people's houses and these like very rudimentary machines, toxic fumes everywhere, like that style of stuff. When we yeah. have like crazy artists in the scene now that I I don't chase, like I I love uh, one of my favorite artists is Luke Chu, and having him on the podcast was awesome. Mm-hmm. And, like just his <laughs> how he functions and how he turns his bear into everything is so appealing. Sure, um, but for some reason there is something more appealing to something that says tortoise warriors on it than chasing down one sure. of the bears. I mean, look, I, I have come to the conclusion and I tell my kids the same thing. It's like, I, I can't afford to buy everything that I like. Yeah. And now with the access to media, I can't listen to, I can't read all the books that I want to in my life. I can't watch all the movies or listen to all the music. You sort of like do the best you can. You expose yourself to, you know, things that you think are important. And, um, and same is true with collecting because, and it just depends how you collect. Like if you're sort of like a collector or like a picker, right? Mm-hmm. There's some people who, you know, they go to a show and just find a good deal. It's like they don't have to really like it. I mean, they kind of like it, but it's normally a hundred dollars and they got it for 10 and there's not this cool thing on their shelf, but they're not trying to get the whole set. They're not like collecting it. Right. If you're collecting and you really need something and you find the hundred dollar item for 10 bucks at a show, that's magic, but that rarely happens. You usually find the thing that's a, a amazing deal that is not on your list of things you're looking for. Yeah. Right. So um, I try not to be that way. I try to buy the things that I know I want. And I'm dodging rabbit holes all the time. Because I could go down so many rabbit holes. And I also know that there are entire eras of collectibles that I don't collect because of my age. Because of the expense that of how much the stuff is at my age, right? If I was 10 years older or 20 years older, I would have gotten in on the ground floor of a lot of different collectibles. Yeah. Right. Um, You know, if you were collecting baseball cards in the 50s or 60s, right? 70s, you would be doing and you bought the right things. You bought Mickey Mantle rookies and, you know, old tobacco cards and stuff. You'd be doing really well today. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so every every collectible sort of has like this, you know, this chart that you can look at. It's like, well, the baseball card collections that show up here, like people buying stuff in the 90s and early 2000s, like that stuff's worthless. I, I can't even get people to pay like a penny a card for like, you know, junk from that era. It's It's horrible. Everything was overproduced. It was like. Um, same is true for a lot of comic books at the time, you know, the early spawn comics and that whole era. Um, it was just now a comic, you know, I don't know what the runs are on a Marvel comic these days, but you know, they're in the thousands could be 
tens of thousands, I don't know, but back yeah. then it was hundreds of thousands and millions of copies. Like it was some of the all-time best-selling comics, but it's when everyone took a spawn number one, you know, 10 copies of spawn number one and put them in a bag and board and put them in their closet. Like it doesn't create for a, you know, you know, for a good collectible 20, 30 years later. I mean, a graded copy now and a top grade is like, you know, hundreds of dollars, but, you know, relative to, you know, other things that you could have bought in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you're just, you're sort of a, just a product of your time, right? Yeah. So you, you buy sort of what is in your, um, I, I feel that way about pulp art. You know, I collect Star Wars art, but if I was 10 years older and I could go to some of those conventions and buy all those covers of all those those pulp magazines, like all those uh, those illustrators from the 60s and 70s, I love that stuff, but I can't collect any of it. I just buy the books. Yeah. You know, I'll buy an art book, um, but I won't buy the original art because I can't start down that rabbit hole. Like, where do I start? Which artist? Who? Like, you know, I've read the stories of the people going to those shows in the seventies and just an artist or someone would show sometimes artists didn't even get their work back from the publishers. And oftentimes they didn't care because it was just considered crap. Mm -hmm. And people would go through, you could buy an original painting for a hundred dollars. The science fiction, Dan Goodsell sort of had a argument with me about this. He was like, that's not true. It's like for the science fiction stuff was always more expensive, but you know, for like the, for a vast majority of it, it was just considered garbage. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, Norman Rockwell, like, you know, also, I, you know, obviously his work was, you know, on the tens of thousands of dollars, you know, when he was alive. But now that's considered real art. You know, those pieces sell for millions of dollars now. Like, you know, there's always like these old people sort of like, you know, have an opinion, and that as that goes away, there's a new generation, and it's it's all supply and demand. So, what is with that in mind? What's a grail piece for you? Like things that I want. I'm trying to put together a complete set of Toxic Crusaders graded, um, and it's proving very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I have some here if you want to see them, but um, they, there's some other toys that I just wish that I, uh, that were meaningful to me that don't have a lot of value. Um, I had all of the, the Mirage South Park toys when those came out, trying to buy those back. I don't know if you call those Grails, but, um. I'm trying to complete my Mattel Simpsons, my carded Mattel Simpsons set. Um, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, there's other things like, I mean, I wish I collected, I wish I had all the original Mad Balls. Like, mm -hmm. I wish I look at some of that stuff um, and it just doesn't, they were too few and far between. Like, they were only out for a few years. It's not mm -hmm. like Star Wars where the stuff was in production for, 77 through 85 you know it's like those were 86 even you know it's like nine years that, that's like star wars was huge this other yeah. stuff came out for like six months 
a year and it was gone. And so, and then the, all of the, like the, the small, like ripoff brands, um, I don't know. There's a lot of things that I think, again, there's more things that I think that are cool that I can't go after because it, even though I really like them, it's just not a good use of, I'm too practical. It's not a good use of resources. Like You're going to just spend top dollar. So if it's, I'll put it this way. If you want this much stuff, right. And so you have a choice. Like I'm, I, I like, you know, I like 10 different things. Well, if three of them, the prices are super inflated, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Like, I'm not going to start collecting that and pay top dollar. You know, it's like if I die tomorrow and my kids have to sell it, they're going to get half of whatever I paid, right? So you always, if you have the opportunity, right, you always want to get into things before they're super valuable. Right. If you were collecting garbage pail kids up and through, you know, 2010, um, maybe even a little later, um, it's just you could get a series one set for it was always expensive, two hundred dollars, three hundred, four hundred. Now it's like five hundred, a thousand. Now yeah. during pandemic, a graded atom bomb PSA ten sold for thirty grand. That's Holy hell! Out of control. I mean, that th- that was a pandemic bubble. It settled down, but it's still ten thousand dollars. Yeah, and it's uh, it just if so if you were collecting at a time when it wasn't worth a lot, and you ride the wave, then it be you know I've I've ridden several waves, um, and then you have to decide when stuff is worth so much money if it, if it's a liability to keep it. You know, we yeah. talked about that in the last show about all the people who's the original psychedelic collectors. Like most of those people sold their stuff because they paid forty and fifty dollars a figure, and if they were able to cash them in for two, three, four hundred dollars, five hundred on some of the rare stuff, like they did it because, you know, if you have a, a shelf of stuff that you paid a few thousand for, you can turn it into ten or twenty and do something with it to change your life, like. At some point, you have no, even though if your intent was not even to buy it as an investment, if it was still worthless, it would still be on the shelf, mm-hmm. right? There comes a time where stuff becomes worth so much money that you're like, you start looking at it, and you're like, Thursday night, 7 p.m. YouTube Live, it's Toys Alive! Toys Alive! Toys Alive! Toys Alive! There's way cool artist unboxing. No way. Accounts under a thousand followers. What? Art out there for 30 bucks or less. Collector spotlight. Ooh, Current upcoming shows and drops. Drop. Giveaways. What? Short chats with artists. News from the hood. Yes. 100% indie all the time. That's, That's Toys, Toys Live. Toys Live. Thursday nights, 7 p.m. PST, YouTube Live. Hey, like, what do I do? Do I start insuring it? You know, do I start. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I have to take care of it. Does it need to be like hermetically sealed in something in a temperature controlled room? Like how much money and effort will you go into keeping it in nice shape for generations? Or you're like, I could get $10,000 for this. Like I could pay for my kid's school. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. So people start making those decisions when it stuff gets to be worth a lot of money. So um, and I've gone through that, you know, many times. Um I'm slowly 
putting a, I slowly put aside vintage Star Wars 12-backs. Uh, and when I get them in collections, which is getting rarer and rarer, I get them graded. Um, if they grade an 85, I put it on the shelf. Okay. And if it's like an 80 like or less, I sell it off. Um, if it was a 90, I would sell it off too, but that would be like exponentially, like it would be worth 10 times as much. Yeah. Um, because I sold my vintage carded collection in the late 90s you know, when I was living at home with my mom and I used that money to put a down payment on a house. Like, Which is, uh, to make that much money for a house is so crazy. And I bought a house in LA in yeah. the year 2000. So it's like, which was one of the best decisions I ever made. Now, in order to do that, I lived at home for 10 extra years. I lived at home till I was 28. Yeah. And... I saw all of, you know, all of my friends that moved out at 18 were working a job just to pay their rent. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't a really good saver. I did a little bit, but really I just bought Star Wars toys. And every collection that came in, I would upgrade. This was before grading, unfortunately, but, you know, I would go through and I, if this one was better than this one, I would pull this one and then sell the other one. And just kept going and going and going until I had all of it. And then um, in the late 90s, I just got the call. Like, hey, you know, this big Hollywood actor wants to buy, um, is looking for a complete set. And they're offering double what it was worth. And I was like, for to have it in this condition and it's this level of completeness. And I was like, it was the same thing. It's like, this was my, I, I re had recreated my childhood, like in, in the twenties, like in my twenties, getting all of this stuff that I didn't have when I was a kid or that my parents wouldn't buy me. And then now here's an opportunity, a life changing opportunity presents itself. And I was like, okay, it's just stuff. Let it go. Mm -hmm. And I did. And then I just started selling everything that year. The only thing I really regret selling was my movie poster collection. How big um, was that because, collection? Uh, in 1987, there was a poster by Killian Enterprises, which they called like the checklist poster, the poster poster, which it started with, you know, the teasers and the style A and B and C all the way to like the revenge posters and the Ewok poster. It was sort of like the checklist poster. And I was working on getting all of the, those theatrical US posters. And I had gotten most of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I was still missing a few and hey I got good money for the poster collection you know it was compared to what I paid how old was I in 1997 uh, you know I was 24 you know I got I don't know how much I got I got $20,000 for my poster collection like I didn't spend anywhere near that because I was selling I was buying and selling it was, it was it was great but in retrospect that's the one thing as I see some of, you know, I had all the British quads. Those are the, the sideways versions of the art that would be in the subway in the UK mm -hmm. with alternate art and stuff like that. And then I sold all that stuff. Now one poster is $5,000. Ooh, Right. So I see that stuff and I was like, ah, I try not to be a poster collector, I collect original art and, most poster collectors I know, if it's rock posters or movie posters or whatever, you know, artist prints, they just sit in a flat file. And you can't afford to frame them. It's a bad value to frame them. Mm -hmm. 
because things worth a hundred dollars it costs two hundred dollars to frame it archivally otherwise you have to put it in a, a crappy frame which is acidic and bad for it it's it's just a mess so everything just sits in a you can't enjoy it so i just decided it wasn't going to be a poster collector but i do collect poster books so you can see behind me there are all these books like so i have books of posters hundreds of books just like you know just crazy books of like I have books of Ghana posters, books of, you know, true crime, science fiction posters, porn posters, you, you name it, like, you know, war posters, like it's just, there's series of books from all over the world. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Because you, know, you can just enjoy a book on spaghetti Western posters or Clint Eastwood posters, whatever, whatever it is, you know, books of James Bond or Disney. Um, and then I don't have to own these huge pieces of delicate paper. And I can still enjoy the graphics of it. Um, so, you know, like I said, in another life, if I was older, I might have a huge poster collection. But just, I've just found ways to to deal with the urge, I guess. For the, I mean, we've talked about the coming out of the pandemic and everything. Interviewing you the first time. Uh... I want to say it was like early 2021. So we still weren't fully out. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, like there was this huge influx of cash. Everyone was at home, mm -hmm. not spending money on anything. We were just off selling like anything that got made. People were buying. Sure. It was awesome. Um, and now we're in 2023. And a lot of artists have said that they're done doing this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, some have dropped off. Uh, what do you think we're at the point that is this what it was before pandemic hit? Is this well, the look, civilization? I, um, like I said before, we'll look back on the era as a whole in a different way than we look at it when we're living through it yeah. because obviously there's like a, a ups and downs. Um, most artists are going to experience those ups and downs anyway. And especially in the artist resin made action figure scene, there's always artists who it's a pretty easy entry point, right? So a lot of people get into it. They make a few things, they satisfy the urge and then sometimes they move on. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that's good. And sometimes you miss those people. Um, sometimes it's, you know, they're creative people and they just find different ways of expressing themselves. And that's fine. If this is one way that they did it for a certain period of time. Uh, and then there's other people as with all artists, whether you're a musician or a, a writer, uh, any a painter, what what any sort of creative person has to, you know, I think we talked about in the last episode, whether you work for yourself as an artist and try and support yourself uh, or you go get another job, which is hopefully a, a creative job, but something that's paying you some money. And maybe it's not a creative job. Maybe it's like some people work a non-creative job so they can come home at night and be creative. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard to, you know, if you write for a living and you're working on a TV show, 
for you to write all day and then at night come home and be like, oh, now I'm writing my own personal stuff, my great, you know, American novel or whatever it is. Uh, same thing with music. If you're a session musician uh, and you're playing all day, you're in an orchestra or, you know, you're in a, a cover band, whatever it is, and then you have your own creation, it's hard to it's hard to balance those two things. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me to balance running a business knowing that I could sort through this pile of stuff here and turn that into cash, mm -hmm. or I can spend some time working on a big project like our Star Wars bootleg book that there's no immediate rewards. Not only is there no immediate rewards, it might lose money. Mm -hmm. It's something I have to do. We have a whole collection of this stuff. Every, you know, I keep telling everyone I'm going to do it. So people are holding me to it. You know, it's been years and years. We're almost done sorting the archive. We're going to start taking photos, uh, hopefully by early next year. And then we'll see what happens. But, you know, I have to put just put like a stopping point on it. And being the first 20 years of this is really a good time frame, I think, um, for a book. But it's hard to stop doing what I'm doing now, making money to spend time not making money and then potentially spending money on something that may or may not generate any money. Yeah. And so that, and that uh, I'm not an artist, but there are most artists are sort of in that same, same boat. So look, everyone's life story is different. Everyone's trajectory and why they do it, what their motivations are. There's always going to be people that are, going to come and go and there's going to be people who are going to stay and continue to do it no matter what um sometimes because it's working out well and sometimes because they can't do anything else uh so and everyone you know makes those sort of internal decisions um but i will say that if you're an artist uh in the resin scene and you are uh, looking to get your work out there. That's what we do is we work with um, up-and-coming artists who are getting into it. Um, you just have to contact us. Uh, emails on the website, through Instagram, at Toys, And just like the conversation I had with you, you know, my response is always the same. Like, here's my number. Yeah. Let's set up a time to talk. And I just give them sort of like the good and the bad and the whole Um the whole story of like how it works and um that's what we do so if if you're an artist out there and you're like waiting for dke to call you like <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I have too much to do i yeah. rarely um uh i rarely go out of my way to invite people uh to do stuff um if you're motivated and you want to make a run of something for us um even if you've never done it before, I'm happy to talk you through the, the options. You know, we sell blisters and we have the resources. And, you know, we've worked with hundreds of artists. So um, that's sort of what we do. Um, it's not right for everybody. Um, it doesn't work for people working in the certain creative areas where they're doing very literal interpretations of pop culture stuff. Like it has to have transformative properties. And because of the marketing restrictions it has to be a run of something mm -hmm. and you know there's obviously some artists that you know just make one of something and that's all that they can do and they move on to the next one and that's totally fine uh we also have 
most of the stuff we sell is carded and there's a lot of people who make stuff that are not carded and it's not that we won't sell that stuff it just it doesn't do as well in competition with that other stuff so if you're an artist listening to this and you have aspirations of you know making toys just get in touch because that's what we do um and then as you get more popular and you don't need our help that's when people sort of like go away so yeah. most of the people that we are selling for there's some people who've worked it out who can you know rika can just like pop stuff out and still uh finds it affordable there's some people a hey, pendragon oh the stuff that we're going to have for decon from pendragon is out of control because he is making stuff it's just, based on where he's at in germany he's finding a lot of resistance to people buying stuff from him because mm. of the the shipping. And so he just, for Decon, I think there's like 17 runs of 10 figures. It's out of control. A lot of the figures are made in Mexico and he sent us signed cards from Germany and then we're just going to put them together and it's it's going to off the hook. That's very so excited. Figures. Yeah. Uh, San Diego Comic-Con was like a, a low, I would say. We only had maybe like 16 or 18 exclusives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Decon is going to be an all-time high. I think we might be close to 50. Wow. It's gonna. It's just going to be insane. So I send... I can't tell you how many interviews you come up in like the... Have you heard of Dove? Do you work with Dove? Go talk mm-hmm. to Dove. Um, and I think the the killer part that i love about sending an exclusive or sending a toy for a show um because i have one of those that are going to decon and i'm pumped about it is you offer so much more than i can offer myself like your exposure you're running a booth i don't have to pay for a booth you're there you i think the even the even the smallest part of that is at designer con i get to walk around and hang out with everyone and go have sure. fun and my toy is still being sold right and i don't it's... think that people understand how good of a feeling that is unless you work with you i mean it's not it's not for everybody yeah uh, definitely you know discuss with people the pros and cons yeah there are some artists out there who probably will never work with us. They want to just do everything themselves. They enjoy or like or desire to be the one making that connection, and that's good. And they want to have their own booth. And the funny thing is there are people at Decon, because I'm putting together the whole uh, the whole section, getting everyone uh, – I don't – a lot of people think for some reason that I like I run Decon. I, I do not run Decon, but I do help Ben and Kevin yeah. uh, create the DK Econ aisle and help place everybody in that aisle so that we can all be together. And so there are people who are in the aisle who are making exclusives for us. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why are you doing that? Your yeah. booth is right across from me. Why don't you make it for yourself? And and they're like, no, I want to have something on the table. I'm like, okay. I mean, if you want, I'm like, yeah. why don't you make it for yourself at this show and make me something for the next show that you're not at for a virtual show? And they're like, no, I want something on the table. Like, okay, good. At least you're doing it for the right reasons. Like, they're doing it because they want to participate. Uh, unfortunately, there's no, um, 
there's no other art show at DCON this year. Uh, in the past, we've done an open call to all the people we've previously worked with that are on our mailing list. That's another reason to get in touch. Once you get in touch, you get on my mailing list. And so that when we do these open call art shows, you can participate in those. Mm. Um, and what was last year's theme? Um, one year was Back to the Future. Uh, one and of this them was, was the art show that, cinema one, right? Yeah, the 20s cinema. Um, man, my brain is mush right now. Um, but every year there is an art show within mm-hmm. DesignerCon, a 2D art show. And for the past three or four years, they've asked us to include... Uh, act, oh, it was, it was video games last year. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so it was like coin-op and vintage video games. Uh, I think they said Pong through Super Mario Brothers or something like that. And so that's a an opportunity where we don't need larger runs because of the way we promote it. And they actually hang uh, in the art show with the 2D art for people to walk around, which is cool. And every year I've been able to offer that and work with a whole bunch of other artists that wouldn't normally make us, you know, run a 15 or 20 pieces because you can make get away with making four or five for this. Yeah. Um, but this year the, the theme was... Uh, it's like a Hollywood theme. I think they're having like Hollywood signs and people, yeah, artists are cu- customizing that. And um, when I talked to the curator, Jane Dope, uh, Carmen, she said, what if we made action figures of like the anti-Hollywood, like, you know, the, the drug addiction and the homelessness and the sort of like anti-Hollywood. Whoa. Yeah. Right. And so, well, she went and talked to Ben about that. Yeah, I think his response was, he can do that at his booth, but he can't do that <laughs> in our art show because it, it involved like the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce and all these other people like, you know, yeah. you can't get away with. But th- that would have been fun. But we just decided like not uh, uh, not this year. Just going to yeah. take a break. Hopefully there'll be a, a fun theme. Uh and we've done other shows like that at other galleries and stuff. Uh, and we do curate other shows from time to time at other art spaces. Um, we just curated the Lou Pimentel's third show at Gallery 1988, um, which is up there right now. So if you go to Gallery 1988, you can see all of his hand-painted card backs that we ruined by gluing figures to them. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, um, you know, I... I think I love to working with you because I, uh, the podcast has become my main thing and doing toys is fun and I still like doing it and I still will enter shows and put shows together and it's fun, but this has been the thing. And I remember early on, um, I, I think I'd asked you, how do I get in touch with someone with Ben or whoever to like have Mm -hmm. a booth or something for toys on tap? And I, I, that was, I should have never asked. I think I was like 10 episodes, 15 episodes in when I asked mm-hmm. that question. Um, and then uh, I sent him an email, but in between getting his response uh, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, Janky and I had talked and he mm-hmm. was like, listen, we've tried to do interviews in DesignerCon. It's not going to work. It's oh, just it's so loud and it's crazy. And, and so I like I we talked a little bit, but I didn't um, end up doing anything. And so there's 
I think it always will work well because there's just no reason for me to have a booth. And I think there are other artists out there like that, that paying the however <laughs> much money, it's not productive for me. I mean, it would only be productive again if there were some other reason to be there. Yeah. Um, which would be promotion. Yeah. You know, could you promote the show and get a, a bigger, what do you call it? A listenership? <laughs> is yeah. Whatever it is. Um, to get more people involved. But again, this is sort of like a niche. And it's, I don't know that you're going to, you know, really get that many more people to listen, especially in a, a room with all of that noise. And I don't mean like physical noise. I just mean like there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, the only thing that would remotely work is if you just did a live show from when the show opened from 10 till 5 kind of thing. And you were just there on camera or on mic where people are stopping by and you have to have a crew of people running around getting pulling artists in just to talk to you for a few minutes tell you what was going on and but if you just did that for our group of people um yeah there were some people that would tune in and listen who can't make it to the show but then you know it's sort of daunting you know you end up with this eight hour yeah you know show that is it, it's just hard to manage um and you know it's, i always ask myself like when i'm doing something like does the world need what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. the answer is generally no but we do it anyway so yeah you know i uh i, I think we do it because it's fun and we enjoy it um i know you get a kick out of doing the interviews or else you would have quit a long time ago um either, and that's that's just the nature of art. Like you do it because of the, it's nice to get rewarded financially for, you know, your work, but it's sort of like when you don't and you do it anyway, then you know that you really love it. Yeah. I had someone, so, um, man, it was some random person sent me a DM at one point that said like, how dare you get rich off this community? And it was like, do you wait, wait, you think I make money? Like you, you're awesome. Thank you, like, for the compliment, but getting, uh, that doesn't happen. Getting rich off of the community? Yeah. Wow. They had the audacity to say something like that, thinking that this community was like funding my livelihood through the podcast. I mean, uh, and first I got, first of all, that would be amazing. Yeah. If you know, if you could devote your life to to promoting this medium and make a living at it that's not making money off of people that is that's doing god's work dude that's yeah. like <laughs> that that person go fuck themselves like yes yeah. that's, that's just not okay i had to tell him um just so we're clear how did i phrase it it was like just so we're clear i just finished working an 80 hour week while doing this because i have an other job and they were like the, you uh -huh. could see they read it, and the the thing popped up as if they were typing, and then it never. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. Which wow. it is what it is. I uh, I always um, because doing this podcast, I think about 
the end. I think about the end of what that mm-hmm. looks like. Uh, I think when I first started it, um, I was in over my head. I, I didn't, I wasn't in the scene long enough to really understand what I was starting. And I think now I have a, a better grasp and spending time with some of the early people, spending time with you and trying to figure out everything. And, um, and then going to designer con the first time and seeing resin alley or DK con alley or whatever you want to call it. And, and realizing uh, that I have pretty much interviewed everyone in there when I when right. I first went there. And so then it was like, okay, how am I – what are we branching out to do? Um, but the other things you're branching out to are so much fun. Like when yeah. you talk to vintage toy creators and sculptors and like you just go into like whatever it is, Beanie Babies or whatever, like that stuff yeah. – it's it's sort of tangential in a way, but it's fun and it's it is the basis for which all of this, you know, without nostalgia for these old toys, like what we do now would not exist. So exploring that nostalgia is fantastic. And I mean, there will probably be an end. I'm sure you will yeah. get to a point where you'll decide, like, I've done this and there's, you know, diminishing returns. Uh, the fantastic thing about what you're doing is because you've gotten to virtually everybody you've really interviewed a lot of artists at the very beginning of their career Mm -hmm. when you go back to them two three four five years down the line and you'll and see the transformation whether they've quit or whether they have some wisdom or their work has evolved and they have you know just so much more to talk about yeah, it's really going to be, you know, you're you're documenting a scene. And I know sometimes yeah. maybe you feel like, you know, you talk about being an imposter and all that kind of stuff. It's like you did it. You're doing it. Right. And no one else is doing what you're doing. And so you're going to end up being the one that people refer to. Yeah. The- so whether you like it or not. Yeah. Which is cool. Um, it's, uh, I, I mean, branching out now the first like three hours of designer con when I first get there. Um, cause I usually only go Saturday. I now have to mm-hmm. switch and go both Saturday and Sunday mm-hmm. because the first part of Saturday is just getting to the different artists uh, because though you do a good job in putting everyone together that we know, Mm-hmm. I've now branched out to where it's like I now have to move table to table and find all these people, say hi, right? Uh, which is fun. It is. Uh, I say it as if it's it's just I like get in my steps. That's all it is. Uh-huh. But yeah, uh, yeah, as long as you're having fun, you know, it's great to to go somewhere, meet people in person who you've spoken to, you know, online, and put a face to a name. Um, and then hopefully you walk around the show and find some other stuff that inspires you and figure out some other people that you want to in- interview and share with the world. And it's fantastic. Yeah. For DKE, um, mm-hmm. I know that you have designer con coming up. What, and you just started this, which I, I very rarely watch YouTube, but I've watched every one of your episodes that have come out. Because I like the banter that happens. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the banter that happens between just the the static three and not the artists. I like the <laughs> them chiming in. Um, yeah. But what is on the horizon for DKE? Do you have things coming down the pipeline? 
Um, the current schedule is, you know, our virtual DK Econ in March, uh, virtual San Diego in July, and then uh, live virtual and then live uh, designer con, which is December this year. Hopefully next year it'll be back to, to November. Yeah. Um, and that, those are our three important dates. Uh, we hope that from time to time there's other projects that uh, other shows that we curate and stuff that we get involved in. There's nothing currently uh, in the works and We'll see how that goes. But like I said, if you if you if there's an artist out there that wants to participate, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, we're always looking for new artists. Uh, the other thing that I think there's so much fun about taking all of these artists and putting them together and releasing the stuff at one time is the artists get a little bit competitive. Yeah, and they're trying to one up each other. Which and creates incredible work. It really does. And I, I learned that on the Vader project when we curated that show. We sent out a hundred life-size Darth Vader helmets to uh to these different artists. The artists that were the big names at the time, I'm gonna say, like for the most part, maybe I shouldn't say this. I'm just gonna say that they sort of phoned it in, right? Mm -hmm. This is another platform show. And let's say like Shag told me, like He's very blunt. He's always very generous with information. And he just, um, you know, he said he turned his helmet into a tiki helmet, which was just sort of a themed piece. Mm. And he just said that if he painted a 2D piece of art all the way around that Vader helmet, the flat area would be, and he gave me some, something huge, like the surface area would have been you know, 12 by 24, like it would maybe larger, 18 by 24, just there's a lot of surface area um, on this. And um, there's a certain amount of money he gets for painting that big. Let's just say it's like 20 grand, right? 10 grand, let's say. Um, that Vader helmet that he painted will never sell for 10 grand. Right. Right. He just knew that at that time, whenever, 10 years ago. So, um, but the artists that I would say were sort of like the middle of the pack, middle of the pack rather, those artists fucking killed it, mm -hmm. right? They knew they were going to be in an artist in a in a show with Shag and Ron English and Frank Kozik and you know all these artists, and they were there to like prove themselves, and the, that stuff it was just out of control. The best work came from that group in the middle, and. Mm -hmm. um, just you know uh we do have catalogs available still on our site uh they're they're under the they're under the thank you um i think we sell it for less than the, the cover price they might be 20 bucks um but it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun to see what you know the how a hundred artists all decorate the same the same thing um so you know i so the competition everyone trying to like come up with the the next cool thing uh, and then sort of working out what works for them, like finding their voice. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you can only do that as an artist by actually going out there, get yourself on the court. You know, it's like not being a bystander, like getting on the court, taking a chance and, and trying to make something and open yourself up to that. 
Uh, and when you do that, then there is a chance for greatness. There's a chance for failure too, but you know, failures like there's not a lot of huge fails. Like, so your piece doesn't sell as well as, you know, some other piece, but they all sell some, right. Yeah. Um, we we're committed to selling stuff until it's gone and almost everything finds a home eventually. So it just sometimes it takes some time, uh, but we're happy to do the work to to help that process along. So, you know, it's like you take a chance. Yeah. And then we have a series planned, you and me. Yes. I hope to be back here relatively soon before the end of the year with a multi-part series where I am going, I have to go find the recordings of when I've lectured to college campuses, to art students, and sort of go through um basically just share with everyone i don't know everything but everything that i do know mm -hmm. um i think one episode will most of the people in our scene know about resin and work in resin but have sort of vague understanding of the differences between vinyl and safubi and injection molded plastic and those kind of things so i want to discuss everything that i know about those um, another show about packaging, uh, and then maybe one like there's a whole list of just what I'm going to call like artist advice, like art. It's not like art 101 because I'm not an artist. I don't create stuff like that. But it, it's sort of it's not exactly promotion. It's just sort of like how to be in the world kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Um, because I would I would go lecture these these classes uh, and very quickly cover like all of the stuff about production like here's resin vinyl this that this here's the things that you can make yourself here's things that you need to go to a factory for here's this and this and this and then the the rest of it is just like I don't know common sense stuff that. Um, that I guess a lot of people don't think about. Like I used to have all of these plush artists that would make these handmade plush, right? Of whatever it was that they were making, all their characters. And there was, some of them would make a tag, like a paper tag on a, you know, on a little, like you can get one of those guns to make that little plastic T, yeah. you know, to, to shoot that in. But most people rip that off. Mm. And then you're stuck with this handmade piece that someone's got on their shelf. And someone looks at it and says, oh, this is so cute. Who's this artist? How do I get another one? It's like, I don't know. Can't Google it. Can't just, you're just, so you've done all this work. You made hundreds of pieces. No one knows, like your advertising ability on the shelf of some kid or some collector is gone, right? Yeah. So, you know, one piece of advice I would give them is you could go get those little tags made, Um they call like a tush tag is what they call them. It's just that loop, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that is, it's and it's stitched on there. Your name and it just say, put your name and your web address, and that's it. And you just there's places online you can go buy a thousand of them. And every time you make something, you stitch it on, and it'll never come off unless someone cuts it on purpose. And then you have an opportunity. You put your best foot forward. Someone sees something that they like. They know how to find you and um and buy more of your work yeah and so just that kind of stuff so i have a, a lot of that sort of written down and i'm going to try and sort of 
organize my thoughts into uh, several shows, and we'll see how that goes. Yeah, thanks for coming back on Toys on Tap. Anytime. Always happy to be on. Mm-hmm.